We're back for season six of my podcast. I'm all about putting the human factor back into business by helping organisations become places where people are happy, well and able to perform at their best. And that's what my guests shed light on with their expertise and experience. As those who know me will be very familiar with, my mantra is simple, get people right, get business right. And that means we'll be covering a whole range of topics that impact on employee experience, engagement and mental well-being. And many of you will know that I hate tick boxes. So we'll be kicking those out, getting beneath the surface of shiny new initiatives, stripping back layers of complexity and going back to the fundamentals of good business. That's the people. This series runs alongside the launch of Leadership Labs and Manager Labs that I'm excited to be facilitating with the fabulous Gemma Ellison of Heart Leadership. These are interactive and dynamic communities that turn typical L&D on its head. If you are a manager or leader and want an opportunity to problem solve, challenge the status quo, experiment and evaluate all within a small supportive group, get in touch. More information and contact details are in the podcast notes. I'm your host, Lisa, psychologist, psychotherapist and founder of It's Time for Change. Thank you for joining me on Beyond the Water Cooler. Today, we're looking at the impact of employee investigation processes on individuals and organisations. And I met my two guests who are joining me at the Annual Association of Business Psychologists Conference in May. So Andrew Cooper is head of the Avoidable Employee Harm Programme and Adrian Neal, head of the Employee Wellbeing Service at, and I'm going to have to try and say this right, and Ivan Bevan, University of Board, yay, NHS Wales. Um, I knew I wouldn't have got that right when I said it originally off air. Um, so welcome to the show, both of you. I'm really pleased to have both of you here and to have two guests. So this could be an interesting conversation with big pauses or us all talking over top of each other. So thank you for joining me. Thank you, Lisa. You have both studied the harm that HR processes can do to the workforce and you've been able to draw out key messages that we can all learn from and that's what we're going to unpick a little bit today um but before we get into that I would love you both to say a little bit more about how you got into doing what you're doing so why it is that you're focusing on this particular aspect of work so should we start with you Adrian I'm a clinicite by trade and and about 10-ish years ago I, I kind of moved over into organizational psychology and um, my thesis at the time was um, looking at the impact of a um, very poorly carried out um, organizational change process. So I, I think I was already then thinking about how organization that was in the NHS, um, how they often unwittingly cause problems for people, um, make things harder, create waste, and actually create harm, although I hadn't actually thought about it in that format. Um, fast forward um, a handful of years, and Andrew and I met when he was in a, a previous role um, and with an interesting quality improvement, and um, we got talking about how could we improve processes to minimise um you know, essentially make things more efficient, but actually it's really to minimize the damage that some of these processes unwittingly cause. Um, and we both knew there was high relevance. Um, I guess another parallel th thread was in my role as head of employee wellbeing, just seeing either myself or my team, seeing just way too many people that had been involved in these processes, battered and bruised and often wanting to leave. So the whole range is, a, in many ways, the, those three kind of um, parallel stories then formed around some very early thinking around this piece of work. And, and Andrew has been absolutely pivotal in making this happen. Um, so I'll stop talking there and hand over to um, Andrew. Thanks, Adrian. My background has been in communications marketing, and I was involved in a patient safety campaign within NHS Wales a number of years back. And the work on the patient safety campaign really introduced me to the concept of harm, introduced me to the um, potential for quality improvement to change. And then I, actually I started talking to Adrian and a number of years back about how we could perhaps apply that to other processes that go on within organisations. So 
that had been established in terms of the patient safety movement, but actually what about other processes that were perhaps impacting our staff and employees quite detrimentally? Could there be any learning and approaches that could be drawn across um, from that world into the HR, the employee wellbeing world? Mm. And it was really interesting because I heard you talk about avoidable um, patient harm within the NHS when you talked about that at the conference, but it was so evident that the principles that you're talking about really apply to all organisations. And you know, when you just listen to someone, you're like, wow, we are so on the same page (laughs) because this is a lot of what I talk about with companies that I work with, but you had such lovely examples um, of kind of what what you've discovered and actually the difference it can make. So I would, I'm looking forward to hearing a little bit more about that, but it is relevant, isn't it? As in, it's not just something that's in the, in the NHS. Certainly. And if you look at the patient, uh, the, the journey of the patient safety movement, which is recognised as being 20, 30 years old, it needs to start with an acknowledgement. We aren't doing things as well as we thought we were. So mm. certainly within patient safety, leading uh, healthcare professionals started saying whilst people go in to do a great job of work our systems are conspiring against us and we could do things better and the patient safety movement grew with an honest conversation around identifying what those areas were and then looking at building interventions to address them and that's been the journey of the last 30 years with the patient safety movements looking to apply those. I think every time Adrian and I talk about avoidable employee harm, we just realise we're at the beginning of the journey, but actually it gives really helpful language to start shaping conversations to doing things different and hopefully better. Mm. And you know what I love? What you just said about it starts off with just simple, good conversations, honest conversations, because I am, um, I was, I was picked up recently for just saying I just have conversations. It's often just about starting conversations. So someone said to me, it's not just, you know, these conversations are really important. But for me, it's when I say just, it's actually let's just talk talk about what we already know within the room, rather than just piling on lots of other stuff and hoping it might hit the spot, which often it doesn't. So what I'd love to um, explore a little bit now is what we actually mean by the term employee harm, because lots of people will be hearing that thinking, well, what do we actually mean by that? So we've we've recently published a a paper, which is our first paper, first academic piece to to draw this stuff together, but it it all centers around a case study. And um, and, and, this, this paper is, kind of four years plus in the making so super pleased to get it out there and we can we can um share links for your for your um for your viewers um and i guess in that paper we start to map out what the harm is um and, and the assumption is that it was avoidable but if you start to look at that so our, our initial and me being a clinician at heart the initial focus was the individual um, and, and that's the obvious place to start because that's often the visible bit. Um, although, ironically, while these processes are going on, actually, that's not very visible at all because of the noise and, and the processes. Yeah. But um, if you if you divide up or, or rather take a kind of 360 degree look at an individual case, what you see is there's, there's um, the, let's just call it psychological harm to an individual or the potential for that. Um, we know that is, um, is is documentable, it's evidenced, it's very real. And we know at the mild end, it's it's a kind of cluster of anxiety and fear and distress and discomfort. And at the extreme end, um, it's, it's illness, it's disease, it's trauma in a diagnostic sense, and it's potentially suicide. So, I think our case study doesn't go into that depth, but it talks about um, levels of clinical need. But there are case, you know, there are examples, sadly, in the media where people caught up in the stuff um, have sadly taken their own lives. So, so that's the spectrum of mm. of the individual. But then you step back and you start to look at, okay, well, there's the individual, there's their family, there's their system, there's the the working environment and the the, the team or the system they worked within. 
because these processes often take months, not, not days. So there's the chronic impact on those systems. There's the effect on, on local, I guess, local engagement, their well-being. Um, there are factors like psychological safety, the things that really mess with how teams feel safe. There's the impact on the wider culture of the organization because these things are never straightforward. People know people, everyone talks. So it, it, it very quickly, you start to see this ripple effect of impact. Mm-hmm. We also know there's a financial impact. Um, we've, we've done, and Andrew is definitely better at the detail than I am. We've done some calculations around the financial and economic impacts just of a, a scenario. Um, there's impact on the reputation of the organization. And, you know, it's once you start asking, you know, it's literally like you open, you, you lift a stone and you go, oh, there's something there. Oh, there's something there. Um, so you suddenly get this very wide, diffuse range of impacts, which if you go right back to the original, the epicenter, if you like, if it's avoidable, I mean, it's, it's diabolically wrong. Because why would you do that to anybody? or any system and which organization has enough resources to 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 cope with that kind of you know insult if you like so so at multiple levels this is not good business and this is morally wrong as well and i think it's really interesting isn't it because um i was part of a thames valley chamber of commerce webinar uh, a few months ago where we were talking about suicide and it happened to be the week that Ruth Perry, the head teacher, tragically took her own life. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and you just think, that, you know, the the implications of that for, you know, the, the, how far those ripples spread. But it mm-hmm. took something like that to happen mm-hmm. before people really stood up and started saying they're, they're going to refuse letting off dead in their school and so on. Yeah. But for <laughs> so many years prior to that, tragic event people had been saying there is it's there is lots of damage being done by that process for various reasons and you know when I, that's why your term avoidable harm employee harm is so it fits so well because as you say it's so avoidable and actually we have that you know a lot of employers will talk about bottom line but it's about your also your moral responsibility mm-hmm. for treating people mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. so i completely hear what you're saying this is yeah, yeah it's avoidable something about the process as well in terms of Adrian talks about turning a stone and kind of lots of things come from underneath it Mm. Uh, I think there's this idea certainly with disciplinary investigations and probably other HR processes because they are confidential in nature and they're happening in one part of the organization and there's there's a high degree, rightly so, of confidentiality around it because of the people involved and because of the situation. But actually, some of that confidentiality wrapped over just the whole process and the concept and, and the thinking behind it. And then actually what we've tried to do is, is look at that process and, and concept and look at it in a very different way. And I think that wasn't happening. And and generally doesn't happen because nobody touches those kinds of areas because just of all the sensitivities. But actually, when you do start looking and start just turning a stone there and, and kind of the understanding goes with it. So, you know, we very much did start with the person at the centre, but we've had HR colleagues say to us, this is the worst part of the job. And it's like, you know, what impact is it having on them that, staff side representatives will say how difficult they find it being caught between a member and the organization and kind of broaching those conversations and then colleagues who are uh, who are leading the investigation they are left kind of holding the tension between delivering the process correctly and ensuring a duty of care to the individual and sadly because that's sometimes just an impossible situation they'll go down on one side or the other and often it'll be down on delivering the process because that's what they're going to get measured on and our work has been to try to bring that process and people together to make sure that they they sit side by side and not the over focus on process to the exclusion of all else just picking up on Andrew's point there and and um another important thread is 
this is this this is not unique to the NHS, but it certainly is a key part of health systems. Is you know we absolutely need to be systems where we can learn from mistakes, and we can learn from errors, and we can learn from poor practice. Now, in my mind, that's just learning can only take place in in a environment where people are willing to admit wrong or um, explore what happened. So in my mind, it's not just avoidable harm to individuals and systems and finances. This actually also starts to knock on the door of harm to patients because we don't learn. We miss opportunities for learning how things went wrong. Mm. And people stop raising concerns or shut things down or, or you know, uh, um, cover up because they fear what might happen to them when HR get get hold of the information, which is horrible thought. But that threat, I think, can can paralyze a system. And there is always a patient that will suffer at the end of that. Mm. That's a really good point. And I think you're, it kind of highlights um, the importance of a phrase you used um which is about the shift in focus from delivery process to how do we deliver. And I like, it's just a subtle change of words, but the, it's really putting the focus back on the the how, like it's actually, the, it's almost put the human back into those processes, isn't it? But also the why. Yeah. You know, it's why are we doing this? Is this the right tool to do the job? And, and I think what we're hearing is we're slowing things down, giving people permission to, ask is this the right tool to do the job what are you trying to get out of this whereas often you just pick up the biggest hammer in the toolbox and what we're learning and that becomes normal and um just yeah deeply unhelpful but but you know almost unavoidable until you draw attention to it and start motivating people to question and think differently mm. we're really looking i guess as well to to helping staff have more mature, sophisticated conversations around this as well. So um, we've done uh, we've done a training event that we've rolled out to a few hundred people now, and as part of that that training event, we share an example. We share a case study of a nurse that has made an error, and we share it and ask the room, "We'd like you to read it, and then we'd like you to tell us." what you're going to recommend and it's interesting the the, the number of times that we've run it um, the room breaks into two and what, what we've called the two groups are the law group and the grace group and the law group reads the the case study clearly picks up on the error that's been made and decides this needs to go down a formal route of a formal investigation and the conversations we've been having this work is much more about culture than even about HR processes. And then the second group, we've called them the grace group. They start asking questions about well, what was going on? What was the background? What was the context? What was the nurse facing at the time? And then clearly ends up with a much rounder conversation and is enabled to make a much better decision, not just for the individual, but for the organization, and ultimately for, for patients going forward as well, so that actually the focus becomes a learning experience rather than an opportunity, um, or certainly a case that our law group would want to punish. Now, we recognize in all this, there are, there are cases which really need to go down a formal route because there's been major negligence, major harm. But our recognition is it is the most people come into work to do a great job. They want to do the best. They want to bring the best of themselves to work. And often what our processes don't consider are the impact on the system of that, the system of an organization on that approach. So it's those conversations, Lisa, that you mentioned at the beginning is really key for, for taking this forward and, and having better outcomes as a result of those processes. So I, I guess in terms of the processes that we put people through, for the, for the legal approach and our HR team who've been incredibly passionate about this work often start with the question, what is the ultimate outcome 
uh, from this exercise. Is this an is this a very clear set approach because there's major negligence and this could lead to dismissal? Or is the outcome, uh, we wouldn't see this person losing their, their job as a result of this error. Um, how do we go about doing it differently? So if it is that latter, we don't expect people to lose their job as a result of this exploration, then there's 101 better ways to, to take an individual through a process in terms of to learn from it, to perhaps acknowledge um, the error, but then to actually grow from it. So we have uh, an individual that's, that's been supported through a challenging time in their career that we acknowledge perhaps the part that the system has played um, in terms of that situation. And then we've got somebody potentially reintegrated into the organization with with much improved learning a great attitude because the organization has treated them as an individual and recognized everything that has gone on and that can actually take them forward and that's the whole kind of well-being in terms of through a, uh, through a process like this um yeah what's the outcome that we want what do we want to achieve um and then that gives us great staff that have learned that have journeyed through it and can potentially be compassionate and graceful to others i, I wonder also andrew if, if if we can if so that that would absolutely be the the desired outcome but in my mind a lot of clinicians that make errors did not want to make the error in the first place. They're not willfully, well, let's just say they all don't want to make the errors because if they do, there's a separate issue. That's not what we're talking about. But people will be distressed by errors, but they will also want to know why they made them. And if it's a human error, if it's to do with fatigue or to do with something very tangible and clearly located in the individual, then actually let's understand it. And there may be work to be done. There may be things to mitigate that. Um, but actually, if it's a system issue, then the system, you know, a process in that system needs to be addressed. And you could say, well, if we just get the hammer out and bash every staff that makes a mistake, you never find out that the common denominator may well be something very process based in how the work is designed on the shop floor, on the ward floor. So I think by slowing it down and by you know, both introducing you know, a significant amount of, of um, kind of moral compass to this process. But you're also looking at, well, is, is there improvement here? Can we do things better for that individual, but also for what we do? Is this a product of how we design things? And I think, you know, if, if you were to, you know, the NHS, most of our practices have not just been arrived at. They've evolved and changed and shifted over years and years and years. I think if we were to reset everything and start it again tomorrow, we'd probably do things very differently. Mm. So there's a lot of practice that has to be looked at, has to be aired, has to be questioned. Um, so I see this as a way of supporting that process as well. Um, and I'm I'm curious to think about how we help organisations move from a position of blame because it's almost like our human default setting is mm -hmm. cover up and mm -hmm. we'll find fault you know if yeah. there's someone who's to blame and there's so much work to be done on psychological safety and and mm. people are much more aware of that now but actually to really make a cultural change yeah. rather than just saying yeah we're going to stop blaming each other we're going to start um using errors mm. and mistakes as a learning opportunity is saying it and doing it's very different. What yeah. would your advice be to organisations, to leaders who are really seriously interested in shifting from a position of blame to one that is more about compassion? So, so I think a lot depends on how you would define compassion as a as a cultural thing. Um, I, I guess. You know, humans are a tricky bunch, aren't we? We we have a capacity for immense uh, um, care, love, support, compassion, but incredible cruelty as well. So, you know, we're we're definitely 
tricky. Um, I guess my mind, how do you end up with a blame culture? How do you end up where blame, blaming an individual becomes the default position? And and um, I think that doesn't arrive overnight. I think those are often the product of other cultural components, which often just simmer around. But I'm, I'm reminded of um, some of the, I mean, it's, it's, it is, I'll be entering to pop psychology a bit, but some of the the more visible work of um, of Zimbardo, obviously there's the Stanford prison stuff, which is a bit dodgy, but some of the more recent stuff is a bit more credible. But a quote that I always stay with is, is if you have bad apples, then you have bad barrels and bad barrel makers. So there's a sense of it doesn't blame doesn't make sense systemic to explain an issue systemically but it may be a convenient organizational defense and organizational response to mitigate something else. So is where there's you've got blame, there's always got something else that's going on. And you probably can't just stop that. You've got to engage in some form of cultural uh, change process. And it starts with everyone going, we've got this wrong. And I think we're beginning to get into that place in this specific area, which I think is in, we couldn't have got we couldn't have got where we've got without that awareness of okay we've got to do things differently um but once you've got that awareness then you can start to think well what does compassion look like um and i wonder if compassion is simply a a um if you look at it from underneath if you just if you remove threat as much as possible you may end up with compassion by default <laughs> i like that and there's something around as well, starting small, I guess, in terms of the question was as well, it, the question was around how do you make the change or start making the change and culture is just a massive, a massive area to, um, to know where to start. I think what's been quite helpful with this, this work and programme, we've started in one particular area. I'm going to take us back to the patient safety movement and kind of say, you know, the way they identified healthcare associated infections or whether they identified sepsis and, the, and they worked on those individual pieces of work, kind of bringing learning together around them, uh, building pace around it. And then when you actually put all those areas together, that's what contributed to a change and, and a seismic change in terms of patient safety and the movement to drive change. So I guess what we are seeing with this piece of work, we're starting with employee investigations, we've identified the harm, we've seen the impact, we've built some interventions around it to start driving that change forward. But I guess that's why it sits under that avoidable employee harm umbrella, because there will be other things that we will want to start looking at, perhaps the impact of organisational change on individuals. If it's not done well, it is incredibly damaging. Um, how do we create speaking up cultures so that actually perhaps we're starting with parts of the jigsaw how do you how, how do you make a change in terms of one area learn from it then how do you apply it to another so and that's I guess how the patient safety movements grew and that's kind of where we'd like to see this work grow it's about identifying those areas where we know there's high harm impact that we could do something about that we can learn and and move forward it's interesting in NHS Wales at the moment there's a there's a major focus on compassionate leadership and we talk about that in terms of the training day and of course Adrian's kind of touched on just the complexity of compassion what it looks like what it feels like how it outworks and when when we talk about compassionate leadership in terms of uh, employee investigations usually more than one person will say oh does that mean we got to go soft on people is that what you're saying and then actually, no, what, what we are saying is certainly as the way compassionate leadership is explained, there's key elements around listening, empathising, understanding, attending. So those very practical tools help people make a better decision around the next steps to take forward. So with an investigation process, if we've got our investigating officers and colleagues that are leading it, stopping to attend, to listen, 
to empathise, then the outcome will obviously be very different from somebody who just shoots from the hip and says, this is where we're going to go uh, uh, with it. The, um, the outcome may be incredibly um, hard and challenging for the person, but the process by which they've got to it is far more thought through and compassionate as a result. And that's kind of taking that whole piece of work by Michael West on, around compassionate leadership and applying it is really trying to ground it as well. I, and I like what you said about um, almost treating it like a jigsaw puzzle and starting with one piece, because I think I remember going back a number of years and people would be doing lots of different things, lots of different places in an organisation, weren't really talking to each other. And it was all um, a bit messy. And then people stood back and said, well, actually, what we need to do is make sure we're doing everything as a whole organisation. But then it becomes so overwhelming. It's like you were saying, you know, we talk about culture what does that well firstly what does that actually mean we're all talking about it from a in a different perspective but actually where on earth do you start and how how just how do you approach that and how do you um measure that how do you communicate that how you know just big how and i'm such a fan of actually just zooming in somewhere knowing that if you change one part of a system it will have that ripple effect and when you can find you know my advice to people when they say where do we start is actually just find the right people who are behind the idea who believe in it who want to make a difference start by having those conversations and then just make that change there and then look at how to you know build out from that based on what you find communicating that seeing the relevance for others um and yeah just starting small rather than you've got to do it as a whole organization and everyone's got to be on the same page at the same time because i think that paralyzes people into just not doing anything there's certainly been something about the work that we've started, certainly working with HR. Um, HR have led, led this work and we've been working with them. Um, we kind of say it's the first time that wellbeing and HR work together and we kind of feel a little embarrassed about that. Why on earth haven't we been working together before? Um, but a key part of certainly the training we developed around this was a recognition that this, this isn't just a HR issue that is broader, so bringing the right people around the table changes the conversation. So as you'd expect, if you just have HR colleagues talking about uh, a, a disciplinary process, it's going to be one kind of focus on it. If you bring in wellbeing, it changes again. If you bring in staff side in terms of their union representatives, and, and certainly I think what's been one of the strengths around it is those conversations across those different groups. I've actually discovered, and I know it's corny, but 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 almost there's more agreement than disagreement in terms of the group, because actually everybody's aiming to, to get the best outcome for the individual and for the organization. And that opportunity to work work together, I think has been quite quite key to this work. But I also think you just said something really important there about the embarrassment factor, because I think a lot of um, leaders who I talk to and managers actually don't, they feel embarrassed that they haven't got stuff right. Um, maybe because it sounds obvious in theory, it sounds simple, um, or maybe it's just because there's been a lot of talk about it. And it's like, well, surely we should have got this sorted out by now. And that ability to be honest and say, actually, I know I should be doing it, but I just haven't got around to it yet. Um, or I don't know where to start, or I just don't have the knowledge and skills to do anything with it. And, and I love just that honesty about the first time HR and wellbeing are really talking to each other. And so many organizations haven't made those connections and they know they should be. And, you know, it's all often it's the right intention, but having creating the space to look at how do we make those connections and how do we have the conversations we need to have? That's the bit that gets squashed, you know, removed from our, our week when we're under a huge amount of pressure, as we know NHS is. Um, so I think, I think I love that honesty, just that sense of embarrassment. I think just to pick up on that, what, and this is this really, you know, it's funny how you have conversations a hundred times and then another conversation you go, oh yeah, a penny drops. Mm. Just just thinking about some of the the magic ingredients so you know we've we, we've approached this as a kind of behavioral change 
program in but in a light way in that we were looking to motivate people so we wanted people to see the relevance no matter where they were so these these big events have helped do that um because the relevance is very clear the evidence is very clear but we've also i guess helped them um see a way forward and consider options very tangible things they could do but the third bit i think is the bit you've just kind of touched on is that we've not we've not we've not come at it from a moral you know from atop a big moral hill looking down we've approached it as a collaborative exploration and we've not we've deliberately kept away from being the smug experts um and welcomed as much kind of it, it, inclusive communication as possible from the various professional groups um and by doing so i think we've we've probably indirectly avoided any shaming kind of naming and shaming we've, we've kind of not you know i think we and then it's probably not a design thing but it's probably an artifact of just how we we operate mm. but we've not gone on to change their behavior but through shame um that, yeah and that's so powerful it's that sense of it's the trust isn't mm, it in terms mm. of you know, I often mm. talk about, I'll just be there to have a chat with or hold your hand on that journey or whatever. I'm not going to be coming and telling you how to do stuff. Mm. Um, I was talking to someone recently and saying that a company decided I wasn't for them because they wanted me just to come in with a off-the-shelf program and do the thing. I was like, I'm not going to be doing anything to anyone. I'm going to come <laughs> in and help you on your journey, which means you've got to invest the, the time and the effort and the want mm. into doing this, mm. which isn't for everyone. But that trust and just knowing that, people can be very honest and open and they're not going to be judged. And, you know, as soon as you let those, the guards down, it's like, that's when you have the real, you come across the real valuable nuggets of information that can just change the course of everything. You know, it just changes all those processes, just changes how we do stuff. Mm. It's so, so powerful. Tell me a little bit more about um, Alex. So in terms of when I read your, um, the, there's a, the case study that you've written up in the British Journal of Healthcare Management and the the that piece, you said identified um, the four main themes that were drawn out from that thematic analysis of the experts' reflections. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. So I think as we were exploring this work, we were just aware that... Um, there weren't many case studies out there. There weren't many um, examples of when things went wrong. And that's often for a number of reasons. I, I, I think as soon as a process is over, organisations want to move on, individuals want to move on. It's mm. just so uncomfortable for everybody. Um, and yet experts like Sid, uh, Sydney Decker from Just Culture, talk about that's the, that's the key point at which to learn because you've gone through the awful trauma and pain for everybody. It's, it's closed and the danger is everybody moves on so quickly and then doesn't capture the lessons from it. And then of course the even bigger tragedy then is, is if you don't capture the lessons, you repeat them all again uh, the next time. And then, of course, from the other side, for those cases that, that are particularly challenging and that go all the way to potentially a tribunal, often non-disclosure agreements are signed and, and organisations move on. And then, of course, there's no opportun opportunity for learning there either. So, so, so the Alex case study within the paper was just an opportunity to to walk with someone who had gone through an experience to try and understand it from their perspective. And in truth, going back to patient safety over the last 20, 30 years, there's been an increased focus on understanding the patient's journey through the system. What does it look like? What does it feel like uh, to the individual? And again, we, we really need to do that much more with our employees to actually understand if we are putting them through processes and recognising that we're all operating in imperfect systems and that we all are imperfect, that no process is going to be um, um, 
painless or harmless? Shouldn't we have an interest to know how it's impacting somebody? Shouldn't we know, want to know, well, if we do this or we don't do that, it's going to lead to X or Y? So that was the purpose in terms of um, using that case study and then working with colleagues, identifying in some of the, the main themes uh, that, that came out of that experience. But as we've shared that case study, um, the resonance has been incredibly powerful. Yeah. Uh, people in the room will say, either I've been through that process or they'll say, I've contributed to that process because I didn't respond in a timely way, because I canceled three or four meetings because my workload was so challenging. And they actually kind of see then the impact of what a, what, what a busy diary for them, legitimately so, but how it then impacts on the person they take through a process. Mm. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. I mean, I, I, all to add is, you know, at, at a very, you know, Alex is a real person. Um, in my nine years, in my current post, I've lost track of how many other Alexes there are. So, you know, that, that it's important to hold that idea that these people have not had a voice mm. in this process. So I think that that symbolically is incredibly powerful. But it, you know, Alex's voice is also a very powerful device for us. Um, because it helps highlight the relevance of 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 the impact at the, at least the entry point, and then people can start to see the the bigger picture once you walk around. Um, but you know we're emotional beings. We're you know we're moved by emotional stories. You know advertisers know that full well. Mm -hmm. So so um, you know th there is there has been some crafting around that story, but the evidence is the evidence. Um, and I, we use it, I think, quite effectively in the training because it 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 increases relevance and makes people think. You know, it it it, it um, activates the bit of them that makes them want to do things differently. Um, mm -hmm. But I would never want that voice to be lost. And I think it's a really interesting observation about um, you know needing to to learn from the experience once something's happened rather than just move on as quickly as possible. Yeah. And it reminds me of a conversation I was having recently with an organization where some people in managerial positions were saying, this event has happened and we need to learn from it. Um, and there's a lot to be learned and actually we need to do that in order to be able to move forward in a really healthy way, make sure we do change behaviors. But there was so much resistance also to revisiting because yeah. because people assume that if you're going to revisit something it's going to feel traumatic all over again it's going to be all associated with yeah. all the negative emotions that were experienced at the time and it's really hard for people to understand that by revisiting you're not going through the pain again you're you're having someone walk you through the experience but in a framing it in a different way which is about we are learning from it this is change positive change is going to happen is for a positive purpose now but it's that's a hard shift for some people to make isn't it um oh, and yeah. certainly it hasn't been ironed out in that particular organization and I don't think they're unique I think there's that sort of tension that conflict within organizations between some people who really want to visit and some people like just keeping the door mm -hmm. shut on it yeah no, I'd agree I mean it this reminds me of some of the conversation we had this morning at the Cardiff Business School, and I was, you know, being a psychologist and chirping up and saying, look, you know, if we're emotional beings before we're logical beings, it stands to reason that we're going to put a lot of energy into managing our emotions. And actually, we're not very good at it very often, so we may deploy some slightly more clumsy or crude ways of shutting things down, avoiding affect, you know, almost, and that might shape culture. That might shape a, a an approach to something maybe braver, but maybe more uncomfortable. Um, we don't like discomfort. Uh, we don't like uncertainty. So, so I think these are this the landscape, and it probably explains a lot of why weird things happen and um, strange behaviors get played out in systems. But um, 
So tell me a little bit more about the, um, I think you call it the employee experience framework. I mean, <laughs> tell, tell me a little bit more. Adrian, you're chuckling. Why are you chuckling? <laughs> it's left to feel, but it's relevant, I guess. Um, Andrew, you okay me talking about this? All right. So, so, so this thing we call the employee experience framework um, is, so it was, it was, Back in 2019, um, my then boss, the director of workforce, said we need something a bit radical that might try and help us with both wider well-being, and I'm not talking about yoga and you know ice baths, um, i.e. engagement, meaning, purpose, all the the, the evidence-based stuff, and. Um, Engagement, we want people, and engagement being obviously the other end of the scale to burnout, because we know there's a big problem there. So, so myself and some colleagues from OD developed this, this framework, um, and rather than have a policy for well-being or a policy for engagement, which no one ever looks at, we built an operational tool that was kind of distilled from um, three different theoretical models. Ironically, one of them is the model that underpins the compassionate leadership model, the, um, the Desi and Ryan uh, self-determination theory so nice theoretically based brought together as a series of six conditions if you like or six factors pillars they were called that might underpin um, a healthier culture um, or a better experience of work and that's where the employee experience framework was kind of developed then the pandemic hit and and um the the um, proverbial hit the fan and we had to get up with things so we're just bringing it back out now but essentially and this is where i forget all six but I'll, I'll do my best so so we're talking about six core conditions that all humans rather humans in an occupational setting need in varying degrees but are great indicators of psychological health and organization well-being and high engagement. So I'll read them out to you. So my work is purpose. I have enough control. I feel cared for. I have a sense of belonging. There we go. Um, my work is valued and I'm fairly treated. So we, we we basically say, look, we don't know the answer. Everyone's job's a bit different. Everyone's built slightly differently. But we know that these are great pillars to build your experience of work around. So that has now been built into people's annual reviews. Um, so everyone who does their their uh, the performance review um, has to respond to questions along those lines. And in theory, if there's a half decent relationship with a manager, you can talk about that and you can work out where you're at with it. Um, it's also been used as a underpinning for a national tool. Um, so we've called it the employee. No, what's it called? Um, the well-being conversation guide. It's a bit euphemistic, but it's a we built it into a four-stage tool for managers to use with people with guides and prompts, which is located in in the, the Welsh government ESR, which is a a tool that people can access for for training. So it's it's grown and grown and grown, um, but it's 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 the same stuff as as we're, you know we're all trying to get to what identify what the core conditions to thrive at. Um, I don't think it's the answer, but it's definitely more the answer than doing nothing or, or looking in a bit more linear way um, so it is a bit left field from what we were talking about in terms of um employee harm but actually those pillars are really essential aren't they for reducing employee harm because we've yeah. got to have people we've got to have people i mean what you've just listed those core pillars really overlap with um the human givens institute emotional needs and I use an emotional needs audit quite a lot, whether I'm working with yeah. individuals or teams, yeah. organisations, which is all around um, meaning and purpose and feeling recognised and valued yeah. and connected and so on. And we know that that's what is critical for our own well-being, for that of others. Yeah. And we need that as your kind of foundation. If we're looking at mm -hmm. how to reduce harm and yeah. enable people to thrive, we've got to have it's the, it's the soft skills. It's all that stuff yeah. around our emotional needs um, that we've yeah. got to get right. So, so I think it's really important to to kind of connect those. But I think the the avoidable harm stuff. Sorry, Andrew, just I'll shut up. Definitely in a sec. Taps directly into that sense of fairness and control. I think 
because these processes leave people completely without control mm. and also they often feel deeply unfair and that you know that has really corrosive effect um sorry andrew go for it uh no not at all I, I mean just in terms of reflecting on them those are the the measures that not only identify how somebody's feeling about the workplace but it's also um the culture and the environment that the yeah. workplace is creating isn't it so the kind of linking into lisa's point it's doing those two measures incredibly yeah. well yes the person yeah. sitting in front of you this is how they are feeling operating and experiencing work but actually taking a step back it's a real measure in terms of what kind of organization are they working and operating in and those can yeah. those areas in terms of control and belonging certainly go um to the heart sometimes in terms of the investigation process because it actually leaves people very much on the outside and uh, and certainly in terms of our work there we we've really had two phases to this work it's first been around making sure that we only investigate those that needs to be investigated mm -hmm. so we bring the number down but the second phase is very much around how do we look at to somebody who is going through that process who has to go through that process and we've got lots that we need to be doing and lots to learn from that but again we often talk about employee well well being experienced through kind of the day-to-day -day, but actually well the investigation process is really an opportunity to really land this in a very focused, targeted, and impactful way too. So absolutely they fit together. Yeah. And just picking up on your point, Andrew, and, and this is, so the one of the ideas, I guess, if you go back to those conditions, if you look at belonging, but also feeling valued, the, this is a conversation that, that Andrew and I had a while back, but very much Andrew's idea, but what work do we do to reintegrate people back in after these processes? Mm. Often they've been off for months. Often there's been, it's like someone's dropped a hand grenade in their team. Um, it's often their manager that has put them through this process. So how do you, how do you, and I don't think there's any work on structurally bringing someone back into the system or even considering whether it's possible. People are just like, it's over, get back to work now. And it it's... That's never going to work. It's never going to work, but it but people are expected to do it. You certainly saw in terms of Alex's story that Alex had a suspected diagnosis of PTSD 14 months after the investigation had concluded. So it's not even in the period of the investigation. It's, it's significantly into the future. And sometimes that's why it is important for organisations to understand the impact that their processes are having on the individual, not just for the individual's sake, but actually putting somebody back damaged as a result of that process mm -hmm. can leave people feeling very bitter, corrosive, uh, not being a team player for a whole host of legitimate reasons, but actually, as Adrian said, just to drop them back in and kind of expect everything to go back to as it was, it's a fairy tale, really. It, it, it's just not possible. And it's unreasonable of organisations to expect that. So, so how, we, how we move this work forward, that if people go through a process, that they, that they don't lose their job and that, you know, the whole focus is about bringing them back in, we really ought to be reprioritising that as being far more important than we've ever considered it before. Like I said, not just for them, but actually the potential damage to teams and kind of wider organisational well-being and culture is is critical. So I would love to hear from both of you as we wrap up what your key takeaways would be that you would like um, anyone listening to this, but particularly people in leadership position who have got a greater degree of influence what should they be taking away and maybe thinking about doing differently based on what you two have shared with us today? Maybe i come to you first, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going to steal Andrew's tagline. You can, you can go, you go for your tagline. <laughs> it's a quick win. Um, 
Okay, so gonna gonna step out and up a little bit. So I'm gonna be thinking. So I'm thinking. So if I'm speaking to senior leaders, I'd be saying, well, what is really important to you? Um, and if the conversation says, oh, you know, our staff are our greatest asset, blah blah blah, uh, I'd be saying, okay, well, how willing are you to change how we do business to protect them? And that's to me would be the um, the driver. And, and then I would be saying, could we make employee experience a priority, and not at the cost to patient experience, but could we raise that as a priority and do it in a much more strategic and more courageous way? Um, because in the NHS, that gets you into political tricky water. Um, but that's what I'd be saying is what, how, how seriously do you want to do this? Good questions. Thank you, Adrian. Andrew. So for me, it, it, it really is that focus on understanding what the impact is in order to support change. I guess in a nutshell, over the last year, we've identified that employee investigations, they're just too costly. They are too costly. Uh, on so many levels. So if you need to do one, make sure you really need to do it. We've got a line that we are really championing within NHS Wales, make employee investigations the last resort. Our exec team have signed up for that. Colleagues across NHS Wales are signing up for it. They just cost too much. So if you need to do them, make sure that they are the last resort. That's brilliant. That's powerful. And I like the fact that people yes. are signing up to that. Yeah. Love it. Before I let you two go, I'm going to ask you a blind question, which is completely off piste. <laughs> <laughs> and Andrew, I'm going to start with you, seeing as Adrian was in the hot seat just now to go first with his good advice. So Roy Magara from Magara Law, who I spoke with recently, um, has asked this question, what is one career, even if you were paid a million pounds, that you would not do? <laughs> this is where Adrian's like, phew, about eight, I'm just going first. <laughs> so what's one career that even if you were paid one million pounds, you would not do? You can thank Roy for that one. So... The first thing that uh, sprung to mind was a financial analyst because uh, numbers and figures are just not my bag. Uh, you know, where, where would you start if that's not your uh, comfort zone, your experience? Um, so, yeah, I think so. I might come back with another one after Adrian, though. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, Adrian. Crumbs. The mind boggles. Mm. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, um, so I'm not gonna name a job because I'm, I'm trying to avoid it. Um, but I would go with anything that means I lose sight of what's important to me. Mm. No money in the world is worth that because it'll, it'll, you know, it'll destroy me and that's a bit dramatic but it'll have a there'll be a price and i don't think i need that price um so yeah like it i can see andrew's deep in thought now <laughs> but is it that's a really hard question isn't it but it just makes i think asking a question like that and thinking about what your answer is is really good for us just reflecting on why we do what we do yeah and yeah. that's good because sometimes you know, you two strike me as the sort of people who are very clear about why you do what you do and what difference you want to make and so on. But I think so, so many people are in jobs where it's like, why am I doing this? And just revisiting that is a, is a good one. Yeah, so yeah. thank you both so much for your time today. I have really enjoyed this conversation because you've positioned it in quite a different way to um, previous conversations I've had about employee experience and compassionate leadership and so on. And although your work is based within the NHS, it is so transferable to any sector, really, any industry. So 
there are valuable lessons as I've been scribbling lots of notes and I'm and I'm thinking I must remember to have this conversation or share this episode of the podcast with these particular people because I think there's so much that they'll they'll gather from it so a huge thank you to you both and we will put any links to resources um the the paper about Alex and anything else that you've got that might be useful to share in the show notes so uh, thank you thank you for suggesting it Lisa great idea yeah thank you I hope you enjoyed the conversation today I invite you to think about one thing that you will take away to think about or do differently I'd be really grateful if you can give me a thumbs up on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts and for an extra brand point leave me a short review I'm really keen to help drive real change for better practice in the world of people at work and spreading the message will help that I'd love you to also join the club to stay in the loop and be the first to hear about exciting things that I'm developing, including free downloadable resources. Please do reach out to me directly to discuss the topics covered on this podcast or perhaps other challenges around people at work. And if we're not already acquainted on LinkedIn, please connect. All the links you need are in the show notes. Until next time, bye for now. Bye.